I'm Renee Smith. And I'm Alexis Buchanan Thomas. And welcome to Black Girls Do Politics. Welcome to Black Girls Doing Politics. This is Alexis Buchanan Thomas, and I'm super stoked today because my co-host Renee Smith is back for her first show from her hiatus. Hey, Renee. Hey, I'm back. I'm here. Yes. The COVID can't take me out, so. COVID cannot take her out. You know, we hadn't yes. talked about it, but she was was battling COVID and, and, and came through the other side of that. Um, and we're, we're super stoked to have her back. Um, and then we also have a really cool guest today, um, Marcus Flowers, who is a woman's right advocate. Hello, everyone. Marcus Flowers. <laughs> hey, Marcus. Hi. How y'all doing today? <laughs> we're good. We're so excited to have you, too. Yes. Marcus is going to well, thank you for having me. Yes, thanks for coming, Marcus. He's going to talk with us about um, domestic violence and Black women and how Black men can support us in that movement. Um, so as you guys know, we're, yes, glad to have you here, Marcus. Um, we'll go ahead and jump right into today's political hot topics. So much stuff to chew on today, so much going on in the world. Um, of course, we want to start with with coronavirus news, and and just in case people are wondering, you know, why we definitely talk about coronavirus um, every show is because it is in the news, and not just that, it's just barely affecting Black communities. So we definitely want to make sure to talk about it and make sure people are informed. Um, so in the news today, they're saying a coronavirus by a vaccine by election day, probably not. Um, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they're asking states to get ready to distribute a coronavirus vaccine by as early as next month. Um, the CEO of Pfizer thinks, he said, I think it's possible his company will have enough data for the um, FDA for authorization by October. And we know that Trump is definitely pressing agencies to speed up their timelines. Um, that being said, this chief scientific advisor for the Trump administration's effort to accelerate production of a coronavirus vaccine said today during an NPR interview, it was possible but very unlikely that a vaccine will be ready to distribute by the end of October, early November. Um, so what do you guys think about this? Would you guys take a vaccine that was, you know, ready in a couple of months? Well, I think for for me personally, and I have to be very measured in how um, I say this, because I don't want people to misunderstand exactly where I'm going with this. But um, I I don't trust the timeline in terms of the vaccine rollout and the election date. Now, I'm not trying to say that there is something going on, but I'm also not saying that either. I don't want to be out here spreading false information, but for my own personal thing, I just don't like how close those things go together. Right. I just feel like it's a little bit convenient, not to mention the fact that we do know it takes at least a minimum, if you're fast, five years to form a vaccine. We know that that's how long it takes for vaccines to develop. I believe the fastest vaccine that was ever created was still four years. We're significantly out from that. And right. so whatever vaccine that's going to come in the market, my question is how reliable is it and how effective is it? There's still t There are tests that needs to be done. And unfortunately, there are, are, are guinea pigs 
that are going to be used in order to do these this testing. And this it concerns me, particularly from being a part of the Black community. Right. Um, I'm concerned about how our community is going to be treated in this vaccine rollout in terms of the testing of the vaccine. And let's say that it is effective. Let's say that it's a lot more positive than what my doomsday mind is picking up on. Will our community actually have access to it? Well, that's, I think, is is definitely relevant. Like, will we have access to it? Will we be even included um, in the trials to even see? I mean, our, our communities being affected, you know, more than any other community. Um, definitely, of course, other communities of color are also being affected. But still, you know, how much will be included in the trial um, to see? And, and I'm with you. It normally takes four to five years. It, it's definitely, we know it's rushed. Um, so I don't know if I would want to be in that first wave <laughs> of trials. Right. What do you yeah. think, Marcus? I mean, honestly, I think the, the biggest thing is, is accessibility. And, and when we really talk about accessibility, you really, for me, it really stems around socioeconomic differences. I mean, the same can be said when we start talking about the testing, how accessible the testing initially happened to be for people that were privileged. You know, and you had people that were not as privileged and, and they didn't have adequate access to testing, but you had all these superstars and individuals that were, you know, uh, prominent individuals that were able to get, you know, readily readily available testing for themselves. So the vaccination, that's, that's the, the biggest thing for me. Like, what is the cost going to look like? What is the accessibility going to look like for people that are impoverished communities? And, and as we all know, uh, unfortunately, our, our community, uh, the black community, um, you know, we, we deal a lot with poverty. So how does that look for us? You know, um, you know so that that's one of my biggest concerns, actually, with uh, with the vaccination coming up. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, we'll all see. I just, I know myself personally, and I, I'm, I'm not raising my hand, like, I'll go first. I think I'll just be on, um, you know, <laughs> safety, quarantine, social distance <laughs> behavior for the near future. Well, in other coronavirus news, um, Pence, uh, Vice President Pence actually came out today saying that the White House and Congress have reached an agreement to avoid the shutdown, but they have not added coronavirus relief to this agreement. Um, He told CNBC on Friday that the Trump administration and Congress have an agreement to temporarily fund the government at current levels to avoid a government shutdown, which is actually on the horizon um, without an agreement in the next, I think it's like a month or two months. Um, Pence did say passing a spending bill without strings attached would allow negotiators to focus on separate coronavirus stimulus talks. Um, and the government funding will lapse if Congress does not pass legislation before the end of the end of the month. It's actually end of this month. Um, that being said, though, I mean, what does it say that they're still not putting coronavirus relief or stimulus relief in this bill? Um, you know, what are your guys' thoughts about that? Well, I mean... It's, it's, it's hard because this is black girls do politics, right? And so I'm stuck between saying how I feel about it, right? Um, in a very black woman sense of the word, right? But then also saying, there's nothing about this that I find to be acceptable behavior. Right. There is nothing about this that those people in office, the fact that they can call themselves leaders is ridiculous. This is the worst country in the world when it comes to coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And we are banned from everywhere in the world. Our passports are useless. And the fact that they can't get on board and recognize that there's a problem that needs to be fixed 
is complete. It just blows my mind. We need relief in every sense of the word everywhere, whether it is unemployment, moratorium. Go ahead. Because I could go. I could really go. I could have a whole soapbox and I, and I can blow this, okay? I can get on a whole soapbox and then completely blow this out of the water. Like, if you really want to know how I feel about the poor job that those, they shouldn't even be called no, leaders, okay? I, I agree, though. I, I think the issue is it's become so politicized. And and for me, I'm, I'm all yeah. about data. I love data. I love science. And, and the data doesn't lie. The numbers don't lie. And the fact that there's like talk around it, you know, to make what the data says other things to make the other things rational. Um, and meanwhile, the numbers go up and up and up and up. Um, it's just really frustrating. Yeah. What about you? Because it's not about data. I think if they've, if they've really cared about data, we wouldn't even be having this conversation because the data says that there are people dropping like flies every day. The fact that they have to sit there and analyze what's going on and they don't understand that there are lives that need to be saved, that there are millions of people Mm -hmm. out of work, that they have no job prospects at all because the economy is in a recession. Right. And they keep going. They keep saying we're going into a recession. We're going into recession. They keep framing things in the media like it hasn't quite happened yet. Oh, we haven't had a second wave. Listen, I am not a doctor. okay? but if you're going to tell me that we're not in the middle of some wave, that's not the first wave. I call bullcrap because that's not true. Like it's we all have personal firsthand experience with this. Whether or not you have contracted it yourself, you know somebody that has has had it themselves, you know somebody that has passed away, you've lost your job as a result of the pandemic, everybody is affected by this. And for them to try to frame the story as if it's not that big of a deal is ludicrous. And we have all these people up here sitting in office saying, we need your help. Make sure you vote for the right ones. I don't know about you, but there's something that makes me very uncomfortable to be looking at so-called leaders who are holding office saying that there's nothing that they can do. Because why did we vote for you in the first place? Right. And I'm talking both sides of the aisle. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. Like, you know... Sorry, Marcus, go ahead, because mm. I told you I'll get on a soapbox. You got to tell me to step down. I'll get on no, a soapbox. You have every right to be. I mean, to be in effect, you just recovered from, you know, coronavirus. We've all known someone yeah. that we've, unfortunately, Marcus and I both experienced losing someone in our family to coronavirus. Yeah. So I think your passion is, is totally warranted, and, and, and I don't understand why it's yeah. not warranted by other people. Go ahead, Marcus. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, but that was that was my point exactly. It's, it's less about politics and more about people. I've actually lost two people. One of which I'm burying. I'm going to their funeral this Saturday um, due to coronavirus. Um, one of which is my um, first cousin, who was like a brother to me, and my uncle. And currently, my 15 year old has um, has contracted coronavirus. And to me, it's less about the politics behind it and more about the people that are impacted by it. Because I think you're absolutely right. We're not only talking about the economic side of it, but the people part of it. Like, where is that? And and what really frustrates me more is that the message that's sent, you know, all messages for me are always top down, right? So if you hear, if you hear your leader say X, Y, and Z, we're not wearing masks, we think it's a hoax, it's fake news or what not have you, then you have people that's disseminating that into the community. And then even in our own community, I have people that are in my life right now that don't believe that coronavirus is a real thing. And I'm like, I've lost people to this. How could you not understand this? And it's because the rhetoric is 
out there to be spoken time and time and time again until people start dissecting it and, and, and listening to that stuff so that they take that back home with them, not realizing that it's a real thing that's really, truly impacting people's lives, you know? Yeah, can we talk um, for a minute about the Hotep Black community that are anti-maskers and that are not, oh <laughs> that think it's, you know, 5G, that have all these different, I mean, to me, they're just as bad as the, you know, QAnon Trumpers. You know, like they're just as bad with the misinformation. I mean, that's for me has definitely been really frustrating that, you know, people who I, I generally believe are intelligent um, are just kind of spouting some of these things and, and moving in this way. I had a, a Facebook friend who was on Facebook the other day um, upset because he was on a plane and they told him that he had to wear a mask. And he was like, why? And they're like, well, that's the policy. And he was like, well, what are you going to do? You know, turn around midair. And I'm like, you're being a jerk. <laughs> just wear a mask. Or if you don't want to wear a mask, don't go on a plane. You know, it's a requirement. Like, why do people feel the need to test that? Um, yeah, I guess that's my soapbox. Well, talking about, um, you know, per administrating people that are people in this administration, this current administration that are, are, are you know, definitely giving out uh, false and misleading information. Um, Trump recently, uh, on Wednesday actually, took his attacks on the mail-in ballot, um, absentee ballot process a step further. And he told supporters in North Carolina that they should go to the polls, even after voting, to make sure it counted. Now, voting twice is actually a felony under North Carolina law. Um, the state board actually of elections issued a statement um, shortly after saying they have a dedicated investigation team that investigates allegations of double voting and which referred to prosecutors when warranted. Um, what do you guys think about this? He's actually telling people now they should go vote twice um, to make sure their vote counts. Well, first of all, I'm not surprised. I mean, it's Donald Trump. At this point, anything that's ludicrous that comes out of his mouth shouldn't actually surprise anybody. This is the same person that told people to inject bleach, okay? So listen, I think this is ridiculous, but I also think people will do it, and that's part of the problem. You know what I mean? It's almost at a point where we already know Donald Trump is going to say something that's ridiculous. Now we're at a point where we're not having to we have to save people from themselves, the ones that are actually trying to listen to this man, because he's actually putting people at risk and in harm's way. So the new question becomes, how do we actually explain to people that it is not okay or legal for you to actually vote twice? Because that is the new problem here, because we are going to have people in yes. cases and stories that pop up where people have voted twice because they thought they could do so because the president said that you could. Well, and then I what happens to these people? Well, I think what's going to happen is that people are going to do it to trust the theory, trust the theory, right? They're going to like, yeah, I'm mm. going to prove that mail-in voting is a fraud and I'm going to go vote twice just to show you that my, you know, I feel like that's going to happen. You're going to have, you know, the people that are rocking with this whole voting, you know, mail-in voting absentee ballots are fraud or really it's mail-in voting. For some reason, absentee ballots are okay because that's what how the presidents vote, you know, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, but people are going to rock with this whole mail-in voting is a fraud and I'm going to go prove you guys that it's a fraud. So I'm going to, you know, cast my mail-in ballot and I'm also going to go vote in person just so you know. Um, yeah. But I, what I really want to actually bring um, to the audience's attention to this, to this story is the name of Lanisha Bratcher. And I'm not sure if, if, if you, either Renee or Marcus, have heard of Lisa Brasher, but this is a Black woman 
who voted while she was on probation in North Carolina without knowing that she was ineligible. And so they have charged her with two felony charges for this. Mm-hmm. They are prosecuting her currently for this. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, again, she, she voted um, in 2016 while she was on probation for a felony um, charge. North Carolina prohibits those on felony probation from voting. Um, she didn't know she was ineligible to vote, but the district attorney in the county where she voted decided to charge her with a class one felony for voting while serving a criminal sentence. And she faced up to, she faces up to 19 months in prison for this. So while you have our president, right, telling people to go cast their ballot twice in North Carolina, ironically, right? This black woman is literally going through the criminal process right now for voting. So uh, to me, it just shows the contrast of the systems and how, you know, they wonder why we get frustrated about it's not equal for us when this is literally happening right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the problem is we're going to see this happen again. That's the thing. I agree. That's the thing. And so I think what we need to do is come together as a force and as a community and with this platform that we have and figure out how do we line up resources in order to sort that out, right? Because this is going to be a problem. And so we can do one of two things. I can sit here on my soapbox and just yell at it being a problem, or we as a community can come together and figure out what are preemptive measures that we can put into place to let people know not to do this, right? So right. one of it is us saying it now. It is illegal. Please do not vote twice. It is illegal. Okay? And North Carolina has proven they will prosecute Black people for voting illegally. You know, right. and people say, again, it's a racist law. And we know that laws existed like this in the past. People were arrested for voting. Mm-hmm. You know? Systematic. Systematic. So it, it just speaks to, to me, the system is, is it's still there. <laughs> it's, it's very, it's systematic. But then also yeah. we need to line up people on the back end of that on what to do for people that they don't hear this message and then they go ahead and do that, right? Like we're like, we're going to need attorneys on deck. We need volunteers and people that have that level of specialism and expertise that can't deal with the cases that are going to come out of this because we are going to see that. We're going to see a rise in different things like that. Definitely true. Yep. So while we're on the subject of voting, for anybody that has not yet registered to vote, you can visit blackgirlsdopolitics.org and register to vote there. Yes, please register to vote. And then also, too, we will encourage you. And again, we're nonpartisan. We don't care who you vote for. We just want you to exercise your your right to vote. Um, But also to go and educate yourself about the mail-in ballot and absentee ballot laws for your state. I mean, that's it's really important. Every state is different, but make a point to go. You can probably find it. Um, I'm, I'm 100 sure you can find it on your state's website. Um, go in and make a point to educate yourself so you know what options you have so you can vote safely. Um, well, B- President Biden has come out or oh, listen to me, huh? President Biden. <laughs> <laughs> well, Former Vice President Biden has has come out and lambasted Trump for raising, um, you know, alarm about the voter fraud. Um, to quote him, he says, "This cannot go on. It is a destruction of a democratic system. The words of a president matter, um, even a lousy president. It gives encouragement to people who are spouting irrational views. So, just definitely what we're talking about. Um, and then Biden also lit into President um, Trump." Today, uh, he's really upset about an Atlantic um, report that is saying that Trump called wounded veterans and those killed in battle suckers and losers. 
Um, Trump has forcefully denied the report, um, but Biden did come out and say that based on his Trump's previous attacks on the late Senator John McCain of Arizona for being captured in Vietnam, he believes the report is true. Um, what do you guys think about this news? Oh, let me stew on this. So Marcus, you go first. I mean, <laughs> a hit dog will holler. It really doesn't shock me all that much, really, to be honest with you. I mean, it's pretty much in line with, again, a, a person who's irrational, a demagogue that's um, absolutely irrational in this way of thinking. And he always tries to uh, rally up, you know, rally rally up people um, uh, emotively. And so it just really doesn't shock me that he, he has such a rhetoric because he's just really uh, a, a demagogue in the office right now. That's not, you know. And he uses that. He uses fear and he uses misinformation um, to better himself. So mm-hmm. he just really falls along with 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 some of the <laughs> irrational thoughts and and sayings that he said in the past. So I'm just for me. I'm just, just I'm I'm a, I'm a pause. Yeah, to me, it's just the attack on the military. Like it's 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 interesting to me because on one hand, you know. He's talking about the NBA and them kneeling um, for the national anthem and how that's disrespecting the military and the veterans. And then on the other hand, you know, you hear that this report and again, he's denying the report. But still, we've, we've heard him say, you know, similar things about military, you know, families before. Remember the the um, Khan family that he, you know, disparaged the parents of the military vet who, who passed away. We know he's talked about John McCain in a disparaging way numerous times. So it's just interesting to me that like you can use the military in the flag when it's, you know, convenient for you, but then, you know, you did, you can't go to a military cemetery. Um, you know, you can use the military to, to move protesters. Um, you know, they were peacefully protesting from a church, so you could do a photo opportunity, um, but you can't, um, you know, I'm really, I, I, I don't like the fact, for, this is not just the only thing that's been, you know, bothering me about just this, this administration's relationship with the military. Um, you know, the previous report that came out about the Russian bounties on, on um, American soldiers in Afghanistan, to me, has never been addressed by the administration. They've never, you know, addressed it beyond like a vague denial. Um, so I just don't feel like, I don't understand how we can say this administration is, is totally um, behind veterans. <laughs> Mm-hmm. No, this administration is behind its own self-interest. That's it. It has yeah. been from the beginning. We know this. Yeah, we definitely know that. Well, um, of course, we got to talk about Breonna Taylor. We're going to make a point to do that um, every episode until her, you know, killers are arrested. Um, Vice News is reporting a pretty potential big development in Breonna Taylor's killing. At least one of the cops who raided her home appears to be wearing a body cam, which raised a lot of questions about the police department's earlier statements. There was no body cam video of the shooting. Um, They show the officer he's actually seen in a photo that Vice News obtained. He's clearly wearing a a body cam, and it contradicts the police chief, who said after the shooting, the officers involved are in divisions that don't require body cams. Um, We all know Breonna Taylor was shot multiple times in a raid. Um, Her and her boyfriend were sleeping, and the cops came to execute a search warrant involving her ex-boyfriend and used a battery ram um, and shot 13 times. Mm. What are you guys' thoughts about this this new development in this case? 
Well, I feel like it's, first of all, it's about time we had a development. Right. And, and now I'm like, okay, well, what are we going to do about it? Why, why are they, mm-hmm. they dragging their feet is my, is my big question. Like, let's go. Like, we all know that there's a problem. What is there that really happened that we don't actually know? What is there that's actually being covered up? I'm not trying to say that that's what they're doing. I'm just trying to say things are starting to look a little bit more suspect every time we go a day and there's no answer. Well, to me, recently what was more alarming is just, you know, TMZ reported that the prosecutors tried to offer her ex-boyfriend a plea if he would say that Brianna was involved with his drug dealing. Mm. Um, and, and of course that was to kind of take the heat off them for this shooting and he turned it down. Um, but just the fact yeah. that they were trying to smear her in that way, um, mm-hmm. just, I don't understand why. And, and where's the federal, is there a federal investigation currently going on with this? That's what I'm not sure about either. I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm not sure about that either. Yeah. If there's not, it definitely should be. Mm. Well, and further, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, uh, police brutality news, um, the seven offers suspended in the suffocation death of Daniel Prude in Rochester, New York. They've been suspended by the city's mayor. Um, she said she was misled for months about the circumstances of this fatal encounter. Um, Prude, 41, we know he's black. He was taken off life support on March 30th. And that's seven days after mm-hmm. officers who encountered him running naked through the street put a hood over his head and then held him down for two minutes and still he stopped breathing. Um, yeah, know, he executed it. Let's call this what this is. There's no denying it's a cover-up. Well, while denying a cover-up, um, Warren did acknowledge that Prude was failed by the police department, our mental care system, our society, and he was failed by me. I'm quoting her. Um, so, and of course, they've been protesting in New York about this, and um, there was a big protest uh, at Times Square yesterday that, unfortunately, a car attempted to drive through. Um, but yeah, what do you guys mm. think about this? I mean, I feel what, what, what I just said, that's what that was. That was an execution. That was mm-hmm. a lynching. That's what it was. Right. It's an, it's another day that one of our people are lynched and, and killed in cold blood and, and, and no one's doing anything about it. No one is making, and it's not that no one's doing anything about it in terms of there's people that don't care because we're still protesting. Right. Like that has not stopped, but I just think it's really interesting how the media has just gone really quiet around stories and situations that need a lot of airtime and a lot of discussion. Right. Well, for me also too, it speaks more to like the defund the police movement. And it speaks to, again, because this man was having mental issues. His brother called the police and said that he was having a mental breakdown. Um, And so again, you send the police to these situations where they're not equipped to deal with they don't have the skills needed to deal with someone who's having like that kind of traumatic situation. Um, and so it's up to me, it's about moving the resources. Like it's not about, again, I think people when they hear the, the defund the police, we're not going to just take away police and have total anarchy, but it is about moving resources um, to other parts of, you know, community resources that can better fit the community's needs. And I think that's one of them, um, you know, investing more in social services. So they respond to calls, um, like this versus the police who don't necessarily have the, the skills to be able to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, look, you can even go so far as requiring that police in general just have more training and more education, right? I mean, well, yes, yeah. you know, we first of all, resources need to be drastically and severely reallocated. But we also need to address the fact that police officers in general, just the lack of training 
and right. education is right. insane. Right. I mean, is it what's the the average requirement? Like six weeks, eight weeks before yeah. you have the ability to enforce the law. You have people on the street that's enforcing the law, and then how long does it take for someone to become a lawyer? Right. right? You've got right. people that are enforcing right. the law even understand what the law is. They've never cracked open a law book. They don't know what any of the codes are. Right. But they have no training on law whatsoever. And these people are, are allowed to enforce it and then do so violently. Right. And then right. We, understand, we don't understand why we keep coming up with problems, but then we don't address why do police even exist in the first place? Do we want to jump down that rabbit hole? I want to talk about how they started from slave patrols in the first place. Yep. That's the part that really just, you know, irritates me when they say that it's not systemic when it's literally, they, they were born from slave patrols yep. um, and they still operate that way in, in many neighborhoods. We've all been in neighborhoods and seen the police circling, looking, you yep. know? Um, yeah. So. They're designed to patrol black people. It's right. very systemic. That's why they never really needed the training in the first place. They had one job. They had one job. Mm, Now we are a society that has evolved, right? And people don't understand why education and training requirements haven't evolved with it. This is why, because it's systemic. And people can sit here and try to say, that's not true, that's not the case, but that is what it was. So now we have a bunch of people out here who go into the academy at 18 years old their brains aren't even fully developed yet. Is it 18? How, how old do you have to be? 18, 21? I think 18 or 21. And Either way, your brain isn't much. developed yet. Like you just have to have a high school diploma to become a police and officer. Some play places, yeah, high school diploma or, or GED, and I could be wrong, but I feel like some places, maybe maybe like some rural towns, that may not necessarily always be required either. Right. And, and then the most a lot of what they go through is just physical education, making sure that their bodies are physically trained to be soldiers. That is what this is. <laughs> and so is we true. understand, well, why they don't have the res- they don't have the education or the training or the resources. Yes, because they were never part they were never supposed to. That's not part of the system. Because here's the thing when you educate people, they start to look at you crazy. They start to recognize mm-hmm. that something you are teaching them is not right. Right. I agree. And then, you know, you have a valid point, Renee, because when you think about how much money goes into the police unions, right? Yep. Like how that's so much money is in those police unions. Why aren't they investing in more education for their police officers? Why aren't yep. they in, investing in that? They're, they're not investing in that because to your point, it is a systemic situation where, okay, this is the way our system is and we don't want to change it. Yep. Um, yeah. It's, we, we got to figure out, but that's all of that to say, y'all, Keep your foot on the gas. Those of you that are out in the streets protesting, we appreciate you. We want you to continue to do that. We lift you and up keep, in, in spirit. And keep making noise because yes. that's what they don't like. They don't want people out here right. making noise, voicing their opinions and saying, no, we actually have a whole problem here, right? Make them uncomfortable because right. that's the least that right. we can do because they're up there sitting pretty, collecting their big paychecks. Right. The least they can do was be a little bit uncomfortable. A little bit uncomfortable. Make it hard for them to sleep at night. Got you. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting that you say that because I, I recall a statement that I, that used to be um, st- spoken to me often. It was W.E. Du Bois, I believe. He said, uh, you can't get you know, crops without thunder and lightning. And power never can cease to nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. Yeah. And, and so that, that really speaks to continuing the prep to press forward to be doers in the community to make a change and power will not conceal if if we're silent you know mm-hmm. so it's Love very that. important yes 
Well, really great stuff, guys. We've got one more topic, and this one <laughs> is so interesting to me. Um, so, yeah, CNN's reporting today a white professor says she has been pretending to be Black for her entire professional career. Jessica Krug, she's an associate professor at Georgia Washington, George Washington University. She's written extensively about Africa, Latin America, the diaspora, and identity, all while claiming her own Black and Latina um, heritage. She's, she's been claiming that she's an Afro-Latina, but in an article published on Medium um, on Thursday, yesterday, she revealed the truth. She's white. Um, I quote her, to an escalating degree over my adult life, I have eschewed my lived experience as a white Jewish child in suburban Kansas City under various assumed identities within a blackness that I had no right to claim. First, North African blackness, then U.S.-rooted blackness, then Caribbean-rooted Bronx blackness. Um, she's acknowledged in her post that she had no right to claim these identities, saying doing so, and I'm quoting her again, is the very epitome of violence, of thievery, and appropriation. Um, she apologized, um, and, and she wrote, I am not a culture vulture, I am a culture leech. What do you guys think about this? <laughs> Another Rachel Dolezal. We all know Rachel Dolezal a couple of years right, ago. Right, exactly. Yeah, was the you know head of the NAACP, and she said she's the first, she called herself the first trans black person um, in, in history. Uh, what do you guys, I think for me what makes it so angry about it is that you can choose to go back and forth. Right. You know, you could be a white Jewish woman, and and I totally be accepted with that. But I can't choose to be white. I can't choose to pretend that I'm white. There's mm-hmm. no choosing. Um, yeah, for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's what the privilege is, right? Yeah, like what I am. That's, that's the privilege. Exactly. That was her privilege of bouncing between the two. Whenever she felt like it suited her, she be she was black because it was fun, and then when it was unsafe, she was white. Right. Well, what what further frustrates me is that she and I and I read that same article. She wasn't going to even mention it had someone not um, threatened to out her. She was going to let it continue on. She was going to oh, continue yeah. on with the same rhetoric. Continue. Yeah, she she legitimately it got to the point. Somebody said, and and on top of that, if I'm not mistaken, some of the rhetoric that she would u- utilize in the in the classrooms, um, she she often oftentimes used rhetoric that we use in our own personal community, and and I think somebody was getting ready to out her, and she was like, "Oh no, let me stop that. Let me get ahead of the head of the curve before before people find out that I'm not who I happen to be." And again, it really speaks to her privilege and and how privilege right. actually works in this society, you know. Yeah. That she could, again, to your point, use it as she wanted. But I didn't know that she was about to be outed, and that's why she came out. Like, that's even more um, dis- discerning. Like, wow. So you were okay with it until you got, you know, in trouble. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And then I wonder, like, when you're, when, you're, when you're doing that, like, how does that work? Like, when you get accosted by the police, do you turn really white? In that moment, like you know, are you? Of course. Like, how does that work? Do you slide back and forth, like when you need to, like when you're stopping at a department store? Like, how does that work? You know, when you're well, I I don't think you would have to slide back into your whiteness because people would already perceive you to be white. Right. right. The part that you get to benefit, you get to benefit off of the beautiful things about black culture. Right. You don't have to worry about being followed in a department store because people will look at you and know that you are white or right. they would see you that way. Right. Because you can you're because you're passing. Right. You're passable. You're not passing because this is who you are. 
you know, but you understand what I'm saying, right? So you're not, you're not predisposed to the same challenges that we are because of the color of our skin. So you wouldn't even have to, if you got stopped by a cop, your ID will probably say you're white. If you're one of the States that make you list it, right? right. They would know. That's true. They would know. And I mean, you see, I've, I've seen some pictures of her online. I mean, she looks tan, you know, she's definitely looks, you know, light skinned, but darker, like she could be of Hispanic, you know, or, or mm. Latina um, descent. Um, but still it's, it, I mean, she's Jewish. That's not that far removed anyways, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, it's just another time of y'all appropriating when, you know, it's okay. And then when it's not, let me slide back to, you know, either way, she'll be okay. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, again, this has been a really interesting hot topic segment, guys. Definitely glad to have the full team back and enjoyed hearing your thoughts, Marcus. Um, we'll be back. In a few minutes, we'll have an interview with Marcus. Um, again, he's worked as a woman's right advocate for nearly 10 years, and we're going to talk to him about domestic violence and how Black men can support Black women um, in that space. Be right back with more Black Girls Doing Politics. back to Black Girls Do Politics. Um, this is Alexis Buchanan-Thomas and my co-host Renee Smith. We are here with Marcus Flowers, who is our special guest today. Um, Marcus has worked as a woman's right advocate for nearly 10 years. He's worked as a family violence intervention counselor for one of the oldest um, family violence intervention uh, organizations in the Southeast, Men Stopping Violence. And he's also been on numerous national panels advocating for an end to domestic violence, along with other leaders in the movement, um, such as Bell Hooks, Pearl Cleach, and MC Light. Um, Marcus is currently finishing a scripted screenplay called, titled Finding Mars on his many experiences leading men groups focused on domestic violence. And he's here with us today to talk about Black men and how they can support better support Black women in the domestic violence space. We're glad to have you here, Marcus. Thank you for having me, beautiful queens. How y'all doing today? Oh, stop! Before I, I fall for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Marcus, tell us more about your background as a domestic, um, you know, violence advocate. How did you get started? What drew you, drew you to that work? Oh my God! So it actually, honestly, fell into my lap haphazardly. I will tell you that, um, as it, as has been the case for. Me, man, you know, you, you you maneuver and try to find your way in life. And um, and I will say at the time I was going through a very difficult time with um, a child that's you know, a, a child that's in my life, my oldest child. And I was trying to learn more about how to be a better parent with her and just taking an enormous amount of, of classes around parenting and management, just all these things. And. And I fell upon this group called Men Stopping Violence. I actually started there um, in their program, and um, and I was trying to make the correlation, and I actually was able to make the correlation. It's a twenty-four week program, and after being in the program, I was like, "Wait, hold up, wait a minute, this is awesome! Like, really awesome!" So I, I've been segued into more of a um, more of a mentorship, or or you know, being a, a mentor in the group once I graduated from the twenty-four week program, and then I was offered an opportunity to take part of being an, an actual counselor in the program. And when I tell you, I felt like 
I learned more about myself just as much as I learned about other people in the organization because the, the premise is always trying to uh, find yourself in that place. It's really Socratic in the way that they really taught taught us about ourselves and how they taught us how to teach others. And so that was, that's how I haphazardly fell into it. It was it was probably one of the biggest eye-opening experiences in my life. Um, again, taught me a lot about being a, a man, about being a black man, about being a father. You know, and I'm a current father of you know six children. So you know, I, that was imperative for me, especially when having the oldest, the oldest two being girls and the youngest being a girl. Um, it just really, really meant a lot for me um, to have gone through that whole entire process. And um, and I've learned so much along the way. Right. Um, well, we know African-American females experience intimate partner violence at a rate 35 percent higher than that of white females. And we know it's 2.5 times the rate of women of other races. That being said, they're less likely than white women to use social services, battered women programs or go to the hospital because of domestic violence. Why do you think that is? I mean, there's a, a from, and this is for me, and just having had, you know, been on any number of fatality review boards, and having that done the work for such a uh, such a long time. There's a number of reasons why that happens, but for me, one of the primary reasons that happens, in, in my humble opinion, is the the onus of responsibility that is placed on Black women in our community, and that stems back as far back to slavery, right? Right. Um, black women have always had to stand up as the glue of our community. They were the strength of our community, they were the backbone of our community, and they still are. But that, but that heavy burden to always be like the strong, prominent um, figure in the community, oftentimes, you know, deals you to infantilizing the community itself. That's why you know you oftentimes hear black women that refer to their and when they're in partnerships to their homes as cribs, their men as babe or baby. You know, it's just that it's that perpetuation of of that heavy burden. And so because she's the glue, she's not supposed to be perceived as weak or she's not supposed to be in a hospital. She's supposed to be able to take you know no more more than more than she possibly could bear, you know? And it's that steady perpetuation of that, of that, of that stereotype that unfortunately I think prevents any number of women from um, going to seek assistance. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason that I definitely wanted to have this conversation was because of what's happened in the recent news with, with Meg the Stallion and um, how, you know, she was shot at, uh, allegedly um, by Tory Lane, um, but didn't report him to the police or name him um, until some time later. Um, we know that Black women historically have been hesitant to report domestic abuse to the police. Why do you think that is? Well, so, so that's really twofold for me, right? It's just like when you go to um, a immigrant community, right? And something happens in an immigrant community and then all of a sudden, but there's the need for some uh, policing to be involved. Well, there's a mistrust of the police, the police state, right? Because you you see what happens when they come into your community. They you know dis- disrupt the families. Everybody's going to jail. You know that there's that part of it, right? The the, the, the constant and the total and and wholehearted mistrust for um, the, the police state. And then the other part of it, unfortunately, and this is just the, the truth of the matter is. Uh, historically, there's a blind allegiance to just blackness, being being black, right? And and that's and so I, I guess what I what I mean by that, I, I like in the, the conversation that you and I had, um, Alexis, when we start talking about Gail King and her 
and when she made that comment about um, Kobe Bryant, all of a sudden everybody came out and said, "Hey, you're black first. And never mind the fact that she's a woman, right? And and not to say that what she said was it was it was not the best timing, right? But I think there's the onus of responsibility for black women to put their womanhood and their femininity second to being black. And that's an unfortunate reality that exists, exists now. It existed during the civil rights movement. And you can even talk about not just femininity, but you can also talk about you know, sexual orientation. You have plenty of people that were you know, big time uh, advocates for civil rights and back in the days, they weren't given the due diligence because they were, you know, in the life or, you know, not heterosexual or because they were women, you know, their, their voices weren't heard. So I think that there's also that, that part of it where you have to, you have to subdue or put aside your uh, femininity um, for your blackness where in, in essence they should be um, both counted one and, one and the same because those are levels of consciousness and it's just like fingers to a fist I and mean, you really start talking when you start talking about that you really start talking about intersectionality right because one one level of oppression is not any greater or lesser than the other they're like fingers to a fist and you can't undo the master's house using the master's tools yeah oh that's so good yep no, it's definitely true. And I think also, too, I mean, you know, in my own personal experiences, I've, I've definitely unfortunately been a victim of domestic violence. Um, I was in a relationship for several years um, that had that element to it. Um, I didn't want to call the police because I knew what that meant for a black man. And I wasn't sure, you know, what that would mean um, for him if I and brought the police to my home. I think that's just, you know, in even my own experiences as a child, um, you know, sometimes experienced domestic violence, knew that you just didn't call the police unless it was absolutely necessary, you know, because you didn't want to bring the police, you know, to the home. It was always like kind of the last resort. Um, so I, 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 I kind of understand it, even though it's it's a flawed thinking. It's, it's logical, though, in many ways, because we know what happens, um, you know, to... Right. Sometimes when the police are involved in situations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's an unfortunate reality that, you know, we have to come to terms with, right? I think that the, the I think what needs to happen is further educating, you know, you, and that not only goes for men in the community, but even for black women in the community, you know, like it's all right to have a voice, you know? I think that there's a, there's a tendency for, any number of black women to say, well, you know, I don't want to be perceived as, you know, all, all any number of, you know, um, uh, words that are often uh, often utilized as negative messages that are, you know, personified in our community. If she's, you know, a voice, boisterous or verbose, then all of a sudden she's a problem. She's a problem woman. Something's wrong with her. She needs some, a man in her life. All this kind of good stuff. When in, when in reality, it's really about the steps towards what we call true reconciliation. And true reconciliation generally happens when there's justice making, which means the person has been victimized and has a voice. When the offender is held accountable, which means the offender is monitoring and reflecting on the behaviors. And when true reconciliation actually occurs, either there's separation or the person actually is continuing that accountability that happens not only in that should happen in micro 
relationships, like our interpersonal relationships, but also macro relationships. It's, it's the whole premise of letting bygones be bygones. That's the same thing that, you know, Caucasian, unfortunately, have done for us as black people. It's like, hey, I wasn't a slave owner, so you should get over that. That was years ago. You mm-hmm. all aren't impacted by that. Well, absolutely, we are impacted by it. And when we start raising our voices, all of a sudden, they're problematic. And we hear that now, right? They're problematic. What's going on with these people? Like, we give them everything, you know? And, and what needs to happen is what, again, needs to happen is true reconciliation. Where those that are those that are um, in, in a position of privilege and power should be taken account for their actions. And even if they even if their their actions are small, even if you recognize for me as a man, I recognize the fact that I cannot walk down the street without my shirt on. Right? Uh, well, I can't walk down. Excuse me, I can't walk down the street without my shirt on. That's male privilege for me. And I have to recognize that my daughters, uh, my spouses, they can't do that. And if I, and as long as I'm cognizant of that, and I take ownership of that privilege, then I can do something about it. And that's and that's being, uh, you know, that's that's the continual monitoring, reflecting on your attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors that needs to happen for people that are offenders or people that are in front are privileged. And oftentimes people misconstrue accountability with punishment, and it's not really punishment. It's really about just monitoring it and being cognizant. Right. Mm. Well, in this movement of the defund the police, um, you know, we were talking about a little bit before. How do you think that resources can be possibly move to better support um, domestic violence victims, especially those in black communities? Oh, wow. So it's so funny that we would even uh, venture down this particular path because Again, I, I've been on several fatality boards here in, in, in Atlanta, and the, and the very first thing that we would come, very first thing that I would that really stuck out to me was like, how many times did, did you all get called to this person's house, and now she's dead, and now you're just trying to figure out what we could do? Like you went out there two, three, four, five times, and nobody, everybody was like, well, break them up, send her to here, or who got what scratch, or what was happening. It's about education, and it really goes back to what we previously spoke about. It's really about education, because you you would be surprised how many judges, how many prosecutors, how many police officers adhere to uh uh, sex, sexist attitudes and beliefs. Uh, what did she do uh, in order for this to happen? What what happened between the two? What, uh, the, it's just like when you hear people talk about women that get raped, right? There's always the onus of responsibility on the person that's being raped and not enough responsibility on the person that's doing the raping. You know, and I used to tell men all the time, I say this, hey, I'm, you know, if, if, if you want to say, because she came to a hotel room at three o'clock in the morning, and that was a dumb, and you want to call this a dumb decision, then she should be raped. Raise your hand and tell me how many times have you made dumb decisions? And if that's the case, knowing that I've made dumb decisions, then should I be raped? Does that justify me being raped for all the dumb decisions in my life? You know, right. so so it's really about educating people to start. Because, again, the way that this works is attitude, beliefs, and language. You know, you start changing your language, you can change your, um, your, your beliefs, and you can change the rules by which you decide to engage. So for police officers, uh, more importantly, and the judicial system in, in its totality is really about education. You know, it's really about education top down so that they can start um, – assessing and recognizing when there's something something awry when there's you know when when it's time for us to say hey this guy needs to go sit down somewhere and it's not a slap on the hand well he he didn't mean it this time he he won't do it again that type of thing because what we don't want to happen is that you know it it, it ends up being a part of fatality board you know Mm -hmm. no i 
And what you said really resonated with me, Marcus, because, um, you know, Black women are actually, uh, I think it's like five times more likely to die um, at the hands of their domestic violence abuser. And the fact that you're saying that, you know, for you to sit on those boards and hear time and time again, we were called, we were called, we were called, and and still, you know, she's gone. Um, it's just... It, Something has to be done as far as, like you said, education, educating them better, providing, you know, more resources, um, more intervention. We, you know, I, I wish that we could have the conversation about allocating resources to that and why, you know, there isn't more education with the police force um, and these kind of just in general, but also especially for these kind of situations. Um now, of course, you know, Absolutely. we're in currently in election season. Are there any um, le upcoming legislation or policies that, you know, people who want to support um, domestic violence advocacy um, should know about? Uh, well, the primary thing that's that's come up, and uh, I'm, I'm a bit concerned by this, is uh, the expiration of, uh, of the Violence Against Women's Act. Um, that's been since last year. And it's currently, it was passed in the House, but it's currently stalled in the Senate, right? And the Violence Against, um, uh, the Violence Against Women's Act is imperative um, for, you know, any number of, of, um, of survivors. One of the biggest things that, 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 you know, the politics, again, we talk about politics, not putting people before politics. One of the biggest things that's, uh, that really sticks out to me about, um, their hesitance to, to, um, re, uh, to allow, to not continue on this way with the violence against women's act, you know, is, is, uh, boyfriend loophole, which really, um, resonates like, the, the one reason why they they they're having such a big problem with this is because the the, um, the gun rights folks are upset about that that particular um, boyfriend loophole where it allows a a, um, a male who has been involved in a domestic violence uh, uh, situation to they want them to continue to be able to have the right to bear arms and the boyfriend loophole uh, speaks opposite of that so you know the, the National Rifle Association actually uh, have been very vocal about standing up against some of the new, newer provisions that they introduced in the Violence Against Women's Act. Wow, that's good to know. Um, so definitely, you know, if, if people want to advocate um, this election season, they should reach out to their, um, you know, their representative, their senator, their congressperson, whoever, you know, is, is handling things for your district or where you live at and encourage them to, to renew that act. Is that correct? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, again, part of the reason why I, I wanted to have you on is because you, you are a man who works in this space and, um, and, and we need to talk about how black women and black men can work together to stop domestic violence. Um, I think it's like the same thing we talk about with, you know, with white people and racism. Um, they have to, we, right. we can't change white, you know, racism and white people. They have to work within themselves as well to change it. Um, you know, how right. can black men and black women work together to stop domestic violence? Well, again, uh, again, speaks to what you just said. You know, poverty doesn't um, end in poverty. Doesn't end with, doesn't begin with poor people. Ending racism doesn't begin with black people. Ending women uh, men's violence against women does not begin with women. It begins with men, and we have to we have to be willing to accept where we fit into that mold. Right? There's always the tendency. Um, particularly when you start talking to men, well, that's not me. I don't fall anywhere on the spectrum. You absolutely do. You have to take a very close look at it, right? There are any number of ways that we move through this world. I mean, just male privilege alone, uh, alone is you know is a check mark towards 
uh, how we fall on the spectrum of sex, sexism and sexist attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors. And so, again, it's not about being looked down upon or being punished. It's really about really about being accountable and having groups of men and, and other people that can hold you accountable. Because, again, everybody has a mother. Well, a number of us have um, daughters. A number of us have sisters, uh, spouses, or whatnot have you. It impacts us, you know? And, and again... If you if you don't find yourself on the spectrum as a man and as, and as a black man more particularly, then again you're undoing all the work that we're trying to do in the community around racism. Because again, you look at it like this: if if the same negative messages that you hear from white society or you know white male patriarchal society are the same negative messages that you skew in your own community, then they're going to get they're going to say, "Well, you're doing it. Why can't I?" Right. It's the exact same thing, and and then and then if it's and then to further that, if it's further institutionalized by institutions of power, you know, most of the institutions of power are white male patriarchal institutions. Mm-hmm. Then you come up with an ism, be that sexism, racism, heterosexism, or whatever you know, a systematic way uh, of oppressing another another person. And again, it speaks to my point earlier: if you're using the master's tool to undo the master's house, it's not going to work. Because they all work hand in hand. Wow. Yeah. Definitely, you know, real, real good stuff. Um, well, Marcus, what have you learned as a Black man organizing around domestic violence issues? Like, what would you say that sticks out to you the most? Uh, funny enough, you say that, um, Alexis. I think one of, the, one, of the, um, one of the biggest learning lessons that I think, and that actually goes back to your, your previous question, is um, that is that I think people need to understand it's not emasculating, right? And and I think when people hear feminism, they're always like, "Oh, these neo-Nazi feminist women," blah, blah. but it's not about that. It's really about um, having people that are in your life that can live their whole life holistically, right? Because who want? I don't want to move through life not being able to be my whole self. How can I very well expect that of someone else, right? How can I very well expect that of my spouse? How can I very well expect that of, of my child? So I think the thing, the thing, the one thing that I've learned is, and I, and you really, you'd be surprised how many uh, interpersonal relationships I've been in where I'm looked down upon because I have feminist thoughts. What's wrong with you? Are you, are you, uh, are you sure you're heterosexual? I'm absolutely heterosexual. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But my whole premise is that, you know, I don't think that having fem- feminist thoughts are, uh, should be looked on as a negative thing. You know, uh, one of the other things that I, I, that oftentimes gets overlooked again, like I said, is that people, people tend to have their own agenda, right? And not understanding that uh, all these agendas correlate with one another. And that's a, that's the biggest takeaway that I've always, um, always come to terms with is like trying to corral all of these systematic ways of being oppressed and really looking at it for, um, for myself and through my lens, because we talk about being conscious. So, you know, if you're a woman and you're black and you're poor and you didn't go to college and you, you can name any, any other, and you're old, right? So the further away you are from the goal of what it means to be successful in this country, the more conscious you have to be. Because when you go into certain circles and certain situations, you have to be like, hello, my name is, well, hi. You know, you change, you have to change up. You have to change mm-hmm. up who you happen to be. And that's called being conscious, you know, and, and, and so, you know, uh, it was once said that you can be doubly conscious, triple conscious, quadruple conscious. Yeah, and so, the 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 one thing that I've learned is the further you are removed from the white male patriarchal systemic way of being, the more conscious you happen to be. That's that's really great. 
Um, well, do you, this has been a really, really great interview. Definitely enjoyed um, speaking with you. Do you have any final thoughts you would want the people to know? Yeah, I'll, again, I think I said it earlier, you know, power never can seize with anything without a demand. It never did and never was. Um, one of the things that I don't want to um, truly fall off off would be, um, you know, I know there's been uh, a lot going on with racial tensions, but, you know, I, I, I want people to also keep in mind that during this pandemic, domestic violence has gone up, you know, um, and I think what's fallen on the wayside, you know, we're, we're a microwave society, so here today, gone tomorrow. You know, I think a couple of years ago, we were all on, on all about the Me Too movement. I don't think that we should, you know, put that on the back burner either. Like, we should still be conscious of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, domestic violence as it as it happens to be in this current political environment. I mean, you can even look again. Look at look at the current administration. I mean, they've even changed the changed the terms of domestic violence. And and every time, unfortunately, a, a similar administration comes into power, usually there's defunding uh, programs around domestic violence. Usually, domestic violence goes up. Usually, the premise and the concept of the patriarchy seems to be you know permissive and and, and throughout our community. So I just, I, I hope that people will continue to keep in mind that all, any, any oppression is not good for our betterment as a society, right? Any, any systematic way to keep another person under another person's boot, um, it, 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 it flies in the face of any and all golden rule, be it, you know, be you Judas, you know, Baptist, whatever, whatever your religious background, spirituality background happens to be, it flies in the face of that golden rule. You know, treat others how you want to be treated. So I just want people to, to continue to speak up when they see something wrong, you know, and um, and to continue to stay conscious. No, that's really great. Um, well, again, I'm going to encourage people to speak up encourage people to continue to be conscious. Um, we want to thank Marcus Flowers for joining us today on Black Girls Do Politics. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you all for having me, seriously. Uh, I definitely appreciate coming. opportunities like this. Absolutely. It, was, it was a great discussion. And again, before we end this segment, I, I definitely want to also encourage people um, to look into that and, and, and name that act again, Marcus, that people should look into advocating for. On Violence Against Women's Act. Violence Against Women Act. VAWA. V-A-W-A. V-A-W-A. Well, again, thank you for joining Black Girls Do Politics. We'll be right back. Black Girls Do Politics. This is Alexis Buchanan-Thomas. I'm here with my co-host, Renee Smith, and our special guest, women's right advocate, um, Marcus Flowers. And this is the time in our segment that we all honor the Black Girl Politicking of the Week. Now, we've you know been off for a couple of weeks, so we, we missed this big announcement. We definitely, this week, have to honor um, Vice Presidential Nominee Kamala Harris. Um, Kamala Harris, born October 20th, 1964, is an American politician <laughs> who served as the junior United States Senator from California since 2017. She's currently the Democratic vice presidential nominee for the 2020 election. She was born in Oakland, California, graduated from HBCU Howard University. 
HU, for you folks, you know, out there, I'm sure they're listening, who want to shout out Howard, um, and the University of California, Hastings College of Law. Um, she was electric district attorney to San Francisco in 2003, and attorney general of California in 2010, and reelected in 2014, and then also defeated Loretta Sanchez in the 2016 Senate election to become the sec- second African-American woman and the first South Asian American to serve in the United States Senate. She's also the first African-American woman and the first um, South Asian American to, woman to be nominated for vice president. Um, so our black girl politician of the week is Kamala Harris. How do y'all feel about this nomination? I mean, yay, but did we have a choice here? I mean, look, <laughs> I can get back on my soapbox if I want to. I mean, you the can. problem that I have <laughs> with the whole democratic you know that. Process, yeah. w- yes. So the problem that I have with this whole democratic process is that we didn't have the option to choose our nominee. The majority of Americans did not have the option to choose their nominee. And so, yes, you know, do I want to represent for us black women? Of course. But I also do think that there's a larger issue here with the democratic process. Yeah. In the fact that it did not exist for a lot of people. By the time our state, Georgia, had the primary, the decision was already made for us. This is true. It was already now, by the time we Right. Now, if I had to pick a nominee, you know, as a Black woman, okay, fine. You know, if I had to pick one, okay, fine. But I do want to highlight the fact that there's a larger <laughs> issue here in, in, in the democratic process in the terms that everybody, a lot of people in our community didn't actually have the opportunity to exercise their choice anyway. Right. I guess that's true. I never really thought about, but to your point, um, you know, the nominee is pretty much already decided once it gets to a couple of states. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the rest of the states are just, if you have a later primary, it is what it is. And then also, too, our primaries were pushed back because of coronavirus. Um, and so I, I think that mm-hmm. led to a, a different circumstance this year. Um, but I, I, it does happen commonly every year. By the time, you know, you get to certain states, the nominee is pretty much already decided. Um, but I am stoked that it is an African woman. I I, I do like Kamala Harris. Um, you know, I, I feel like um, she's strong. I feel like she'll be able to um, go toe to toe. She's already proven that. Um, she's already come out, you know, swinging. And and so I'm I'm, I'm stoked to see what she brings uh, to the race and and what she can bring. Um, you know, if if Biden is elected. You have any thoughts about her, Marcus? Um, well, you know, I, I have mixed emotions because Joe Biden, I actually honored um, him for, for some work I did some years ago in, um, in, the, in the domestic violence community. So he is actually a uh, women's rights advocate that I, I, I feel very comfortable about. I guess the only the only problem that I have with it is that I, I just don't want it to be about politics you know i don't want it to be hey i'm gonna i'm gonna um have my running mate be this black woman so i can gather the black vote and gather the woman's vote i mean i want there to be some substance there and i and and my hope and all hopes is that it's not about that right i really hope it's about uh, his perception of who kamala harris happens to be uh you know and that's and that's my only only problem that for me that i that i um that I see in the whole process is like, hey, let's do the exact opposite of what the uh, what the other other people on the other side of the aisle are doing, so that I can make sure I, make sure that I'm uh, that I'm put into office. I don't want her to end up being a token. I guess that's what I mean. I'm actually glad you really brought that up, Marcus, because 
I, I mean, I believe that that's what it is. I believe she is a token. I'm, I'm, I, I'm hard pressed to believe that Biden would have made the same decision. Should we not be in the climate that we are in today? I think after the resurgence of black lives matter and George Floyd, we started to see politicians make a lot of decisions that they probably would not have made otherwise. And I think a lot of it is about getting that black vote. A lot of the nominations for me felt like it was pandering, considering the fact that they were yelling at each other on stage months before. I'm pretty sure Harris calling him racist on national television. And all of a sudden you're telling me that they're buddy-buddy enough to be president and vice president. And it makes me question how good really is that relationship? Because we know it's politics. The fact that you said that, we 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 all looked at it. I think a lot, I'm not going to say all, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think it's safe to say that a decent amount of people looked at that and went, hmm. Well, okay. we there was a whole behind the scenes, um, you know, movement to get her not nominated. Like Joe Biden's camp, there was definitely a portion of his camp who didn't want her to be the vice presidential nominee. They felt like she would get in the door from the moment, the moment she hit the door, she'd be gunning for presidency. Um, you know, and, and because she also, they didn't forgive her because they felt like she came at him viciously, you know, during the primaries. Um, but I mean, they were in competition then. I feel like that's what she was supposed to do, you know? Um, but I think they can mend fences because we have a bigger goal and, and the bigger goal is to change, who, you know, who's currently in the administration. So. But you know what? I agree with this because Obama and Clinton did the same thing. But here's the thing. Did, I'm pretty sure Harris, and I could be wrong, someone could correct me, but I'm pretty sure Harris called Biden racist on national television. And the climate that we are in today, that is worrisome. Right. Right. Did like you say that right. out of anger that, that, or have you no, seen him exhibit behavior? Sure. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that in an ad. <laughs> yeah. Know? But like my, but my question then becomes, were you just angry and you were doing it for views because you were debating or did you see him exhibit some kind of behavior at some point in time in your career where you felt like he was being a little bit racist? So That's it's more than point. just like, Oh, well you guys were arguing on TV. They're politicians. They do that. But sometimes you have to read in between the lines. You have to examine what people are not saying. And I feel like to call somebody racist. Right. What did you see? Right. Right. And so that's me, as a, as a person of the community, moment, you know, right. that's another point where you're panning at that moment, or did you actually see some behavior? Right, because I get, I get mad at a lot of people, right? But I'm not going to call right. you racist. Right, and so, there's good evidence of that. You're 100%. Right, so my thing is, you know, being of the community, looking out for the community, it, you, it just doesn't make a lot of sense mm-hmm. to me that that you were only angry. Right. It's, it felt uh, like at that time. Sorry, mm. go ahead. No, no, no. Please. No, I just, I mean, I, it's just, I was just going to get back on the soapbox. I was just going to keep going in circles, reiterating the same thing of what I was saying. You just can't <laughs> convince me that you were just mad. You know, that's not a, like, yep. that's not a debate. I mean, go after his policies. You're going to call, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. we're starting to use words yeah. here that make me think and make me look at people and go, wait a minute. Oh my God! Did he make a really bad out of character joke? Like, what happened? Right, right. And he's known for a gaffe or two. Like, let's just mm-hmm. let's just keep that one hundred. I mean, you know, he said a few things here recently about the black community would make you like, well, hmm, hmm. But at least he owns it. Like, that's what I appreciate about Joe Biden. He owns it. You know, the current administration. You can. That's the part to me about being human. It's okay to make mistakes, but just own it. Um, and so I could right, exactly. Joe Biden, you know, and so 
We'll, we'll, we'll see, but I, I am, you know, I, I think she's great for the ticket and I, I think, you know, time will tell, um, you know, how she'll do. Yeah, that's all I, we have to do. I think, I, think, I think you both are absolutely right because a, a part of it for me, and it kind of goes back to a conversation you and I had a couple of months ago, Flex. Oh, like, excuse me, sorry. <laughs> when we talked about nickname, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I, when, right, when yeah. we first started talking about potential running mates, um, I said, "Well, you know, I'm behind you. Let's let's put Stacey Abrams there." You know, you were like, ah, "I don't know that that that's not that's going to drive the people that are moderate away because mm-hmm. you know she's." Uh, hear me loud, hear me roar. But that's the kind of person I'm like, hey, I want somebody hear me loud, hear me roar, you know, <laughs> behind that whole campaign. And and it, and I felt like he took the he took a, a, a what I would consider a much more vanilla approach to his running mate by choosing Kamala Harris. Because there are people in our community that don't really some of her politics in, in California didn't sit very well with a number of people in our community. Right. Um, when it comes to the penal system. So, and I understand that and I understand why, because, you know, we can get on a, a whole another soapbox about the prison industrial system, you know, but, um, but I, I, I do think now that it has come out of my mouth and now that you have, you know, just, you know, justifiably made that makes sense to me, it feels like a token. And, and that's what I, that's one of the problems that I have, that I have with him choosing her as, a, as his running mate. But I think to, I mean, I think it was strategic in that way to some extent, because we know that Trump is running on a whole law and order campaign. And who better to counteract that than an attorney general as a running mate? You know what I mean? So while he's pushing the whole, I'm the president of law and order. Well, yeah, we've got law and order over here. And and he's got to kind of get to the middle and, and get to those moderates, too. And I think that was a way to kind of kill two birds, with one stone. I can, you know, choose this black woman um, that's, you know, that that will kind of take care of the the social racial justice part of it, but then I could also you know bat at the people who say that Joe Biden's administration wouldn't be about law and order, um, and and in, in the in, and even the black community has issues with those policies. So I think to some degree that will win him points with you know some of Middle America. Hmm. Well, this has been great, guys, and um, you know we're we're super stoked to still lift up Kamala Harris and. Um, We'll be right back with more Black Girls Doing Politics. Welcome back to Black Girls Do Politics. Um, This is Alexis Buchanan-Thomas and my co-host Renee Smith. Um, We really enjoyed having Marcus Flowers on. Thanks so much for being a guest, Marcus. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We definitely enjoyed the discussion. It was super informative. And again, remind um, our audience, what is that act they need to go ahead and make sure to contact their congressman about? The Violence Against Women's Act, and it's VAWA, and it's been around for many years, I think 1994, but it's um, currently expired, and we need to reach out to our um, politicians about, uh, about getting it reinstated. So. Yes, definitely follow up on that. Um, but we'll be back actually next week. We'll have um, Terry Brassard Williams, or Brassard, excuse me, Williams. Um, she is a lobbyist, a Black woman lobbyist specializing in the intersections of politics, social impact, diversity, and women leadership. We'll be talking about careers in politics, such as lobbyists and other careers, and how you can possibly transition to that. 
So thank you again for joining Black Girls Doing Politics. And don't forget to stay out there in the good fight. Check us out again on social media, um, as well as Facebook. Check us out on all social media channels, including Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Awesome. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Black Girls Doing Politics. Mm -hmm.